My name is Pamela Hartigan and I run the Skoll Center at Said Business School. And we are going to be looking at this new, thank you, this new area, well, it's not so new, but anyway, a new label for it, called Impact Investing and Perspectives on Impact Investing. So, um, how many of you have heard the term Impact Investing? Okay, great. So there's been reams written about Impact Investing and there's a lot of buzz and a lot of hype. Just a week ago, a week and a half ago in San Francisco, 2,500 people were at a meeting all on this particular topic. And these are people, whether it's from governments, from foundations, from you know, wealthy individuals, family offices, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all interested in learning more and more about this field. Um, even governments, for example, here in 2013, David Cameron, uh, basically at the um, G8, task, uh, G8 summit on impact investing formed a task force, got countries in the G8 working on this, and the policy papers were just published. So there's a lot of interest in the part of government as well. Um, in terms of the size of the market, varies. There are all kinds of wild speculations about what it is, but the recent um, article by the World Economic Forum just this week um, said that it's probably slightly larger than 46 billion um, at this point, although growing. So with me today we have three really seasoned experts, um, three Oxonians, is that right? Yes. So they're obviously brilliant. And um, they're going to be sharing with us some of, the, uh, some of their insights in terms of, of impact investing. Now, one of the things I just literally, this is the um, airplane crew or the travel crew here. I just landed in Heathrow an hour ago from New York City. I was teaching Columbia Business School. Heath is about to get on a plane go to Qatar. Dubai. Dubai. And Henry's got to run out at 10 of 6 to get the Eurostar. So. And I've come all the way from Islington, right? Okay. <laughs> so we're going to try and, and keep this lively and, and, keep it, and keep it going. But one of my students last week at Columbia Business School, when, was, when, when someone asked what was the uh, definition of impact investing, this is what basically she said. She said, it's an investing approach that intentionally seeks to create positive social and or environmental impact that is actively measured and also generates financial returns but at concessionary rates. Interesting. So the impact, the, the definition of impact investing varies wildly from you know, philanthropic you know, donations to market rate returns. So I want to ask um, each one of these distinguished panelists, how would you define impact investing? Would you agree with Columbia Business School students that they have to be concessionary? And you know, Alex, I'm going to let you kick off. Thanks very much. OK, um, hi, I'm Alex Nichols. Um, that, so, so what we've just heard there is the kind of textbook definition as the one used in the G8 reports that Pamela mentioned that came out last Monday, which you know, represent a really important set of sort of global agreements at the policy level around building the impact investing space. But what I would say is there's a more profound set of issues at play for me anyway, and that's that I think what this uh, emerging market shows us is that we can, we can decouple or reimagine the relationship between value creation and value appropriation in terms of investment and capital allocation. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, in conventional market settings, we imagine that the owner of capital who allocates it will expect and uh, be legally um, entitled 
to accrue most of the value created. So if you put money into a company and it makes money, you expect to get that back depending on the instrument you've used to invest. With impact investing or social impact investing, as, as we call it more in Europe, uh, I think you see a, a reconfiguration of that. And what I mean by that is that some of the value created by the capital allocated may well be expected to go to somebody else. Now, that might be financial value, social value, or a combination of the two, but it's a very different dynamic. And I think what that, that creates are you know, entirely different ways of thinking about the functions of markets, for example. So impact investing is a market, emerging market, but, but some of the embeddedness of market behaviour, which has gone, in fact, we were saying earlier about the original conceptualisation of stock markets, right? Well, actually, some of that sense of the stock market being much more based in supporting long-term uh, pitches in companies or your local community, some of that can come back, I think, into this new model. So the, the value appropriation, value creation dynamic, I think, is different. And that's, a, to me, a profound definition beyond some of the more sort of technical uh, sort of use of words. Um, I, you know, I think I need to start with, with a little bit of context, if you'll, if you'll allow me. And, and the context um, I need to, to give is my perspectives are very much informed by two things. One is I work for a private equity firm, which invests only in the emerging markets. We don't call it the emerging markets, we call it the global growth markets, because this is where primarily the growth in the next 10 to 20 years is really going to be coming from. The second thing that informs my perspective is I'm from these markets. So with that, I would have to say that the definition of impact investing for me is a lot broader. And the reason it is broader is because every company has impact. And the intentionality does matter. Now, on the G8 task force, the debate that we took this level to was, is it a, a separate asset class? Should it be a separate asset class? Or is it business as normal, but within business as normal, you start to push for certain outcomes mm -hmm. and measurability of those outcomes instead of you assuming that there, is, there are positive externalities which are generated. And it was a, a widespread discussion we had, and the result of which is we said, for the time being, yes, it is a separate asset class, purely for the intention of allowing for easier allocation. Once you have a separate asset class defined, then owners of capital can mm -hmm. allocate towards it. But effectively, I think the, the definition for me is a very broad definition, mm -hmm. and rightly, it, it should be so. Mm -hmm. And I think that the extent to which we can get every business in this world, the GSKs included, uh, looking very deliberately for particular impacts as they make their money, right. that's when we're really going to move past the numbers where there's 56 billion to truly mainstreaming the kind of impact that we want to see and we need to see. Yeah, I guess what I'd like to add, because I think it's been said, that from that definition that you read, Pamela, what concerns me is that when we say concessionary rates, we are immediately uh, comparing this with the normal benchmarks that the capital markets has. Because the issue, if you are market rate or below market rate, you are somehow comparing yourselves against, against something. Mm -hmm. And when you are an impact investor, the drivers, as Alex was mentioning, of value creation or value appropriation vary a lot. So for example, I work similarly to Gita, I work for a Swiss asset manager that invests only in emerging economies across uh, health, education, health, uh, uh, finance, agriculture and energy. In our debt financing, our investors get somewhere between three and 5%. And for that, that makes sense to them. 
They obviously have an asset allocation. They get different size of returns, but they are somehow driven that intentionality to add more value as the gentlemen before were discussing and being long-term investors is something that they like. On their equity investments, that's higher, but it's not in the 30% or 20% IRRs all the time. I mean, there could be potential very good deals, but this is not the VC or the venture capital world. There is one home run for nine failures. This is different. Here we're helping emerging economies develop their sectors. We're helping bring innovation of goods and services that are helping livelihoods of people. So I think this sort of mindset of always taking the benchmarking of the uh, mainstream markets, I think it's an issue. And the second thing, I don't think the definition is so long, so much of a problem these days. I think there is some agreement, even the policymakers are agreeing. I think the issue is the segmentation. Who are the players under that big tent called impact investing? And I think people need to understand that there are different motives and there are different dynamics under that. And I think the market somehow it's not so keen Mm -hmm. on properly segmenting what that is. Right. Interesting. Now, some philanthropists would call themselves impact investors. And Alex, I'd like to ask you one of the big concerns of you know, organizations that are nonprofits and that need grants and depend on grants um, mm-hmm. is that more and more of their philanthropists will go, hey, why should I get my, you know, give my money for free when I could be getting a return? Have you seen that trend? Because it seems to be something that- Yeah, it's, people. It, I think it's, it's an issue that's, that's a non-trivial issue. And, and maybe in the US, this is most keenly felt. In the United States, as you're probably aware, to be a grant-making foundation and have charitable status, you have to uh, allocate, give away 5% of your annual assets. Um, to continue to have your, um, right. your charitable status. Now, um, what has happened is that 5% is now including program-related or impact investments as well as grants. So there's the, you, know, you, can mm-hmm. make, you don't have to give away 5% anymore to still have your charitable status. In fact, in principle, you could give away nothing, I suppose, at the most extreme, as long as you could demonstrate 5% mm-hmm. were sort of discretionary rate or program-related investments. Now, this is, a, I think, a significant issue, uh, and I think there is evidence this is happening in yeah. some examples of some foundations. It's less clear in the UK, for example, you don't have that law. And in fact, UK uh, charities are even worse than the American ones in that they give less than 5% of their total assets to their grants every year. About are they three, forced three to percent. by law? Are no, no, there's no requirement. No, no, no. I mean, they'd have to give something, I suppose, to continue to be credible to the Charitable Charity Commission. Right. So I think it is an issue, and I think we really need, you know, the. The real opportunity here, right, is to release all the invested assets of foundations and charities. This is an enormous amount of money globally, and most of it is just sitting in conventional markets doing no social good at all beyond whatever we might think Vodafone or anyone else does for the world. You know, to, to unleash that is, as the G8 report you know, notes, and Sir Ronald Cohen has said many times, is the obvious frontier to go to, um, and that's through the 95%, not the five, not turning the 5% into investment, but taking the 95% and turning it into social investment exactly. is the opportunity. Now, one of the things I want to ask both um, Henry and Gita with respect to the actual, you know, firms that they're working for. Two, one, how do you um, actually make decisions about what you're going to invest in? Huh? And also, I'd be really interested in, in learning a bit more about where are you mobilizing the capital for? Because one of the big issues around impact investing is how do we get mainstream investors to actually begin to take this seriously? Sure. 
Um, well, for us as a firm, we've, we've just about grown to be the largest uh, private equity firm in the emerging markets. But part of our firm has come from the British Development Finance Institution, which frankly created the venture capital industry in many of the markets in which we're operating. This mm. is the CDC. Now, the CDC and its counterparts being the private sector arms of the aid budgets of these governments has had a significant impact in creating exactly the kind of venture capital and, and PE industry which we're using as a tool to try and get the change that we want to, to see. So part of our mandate, getting capital from these governments, is to enact private sector development. Mm -hmm. And what that means is environmental change, social change, and positive corporate governance change mm -hmm. to help these businesses grow. So the mandate that this part of the firm, and this is the firm I joined straight out of Oxford as Aureus Capital, was specifically looking at SMEs on the grounds that SMEs are fast growing and we're going to become a, a much larger driver of the, of the growth experienced in these markets. Now, um, about a year ago, there was a significant piece of work that was done by the IFC which shows actually it's not the SMEs which are going to have the largest impact, it's going to be the large enterprises. Mm -hmm. So that's opened up a whole can of worms we're all just still trying to grapple with. No. So, <laughs> so um, the, to, to answer your question though, Pamela, in terms of um, the decision-making process, it depends on the mandate of the funds. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a PE firm, we have five years to invest a fund, we have five years to get our returns and return the capital to our investors. Frankly, we would love more time. We fall in love with some of these companies and want to be there a lot longer. But the investors who are investing in us have a timeline which they usually associate with whatever capital requirements they've got. Mm -hmm. So if it's a pension fund, then they'll allocate their capital in such a way that the returns will help them meet their obligations. So that's one element of this. What we've done as a firm, and I'd like to just use two examples, if I may, here to illustrate this, is thought through how we can actually change some of these paradigms. Because we are ourselves locked in, in terms of the kind of instruments we can use. And by the way, in some of the markets in which we've been operating, it's the first time we, these instruments have ever been used. So it's taken us a while to even get the capital markets to understand how this works, much less the entrepreneurs. We, we raised a fund in 2008, which, is, uh, which was the world's first base of pyramid fund. And this was a fund which allowed the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for the first time to make an investment into a for-profit fund. And so that was already quite a challenge. Um, it was a fund, we raised $105 million to invest in small and medium-sized businesses in Africa to reach the base of the pyramid. Was so this Aureus or was it a brush? It was Aureus. Aureus. It was okay. Aureus. And the intention was to increase access, affordability and quality of healthcare to those at the base of the pyramid. We changed the structure of the fund such that the, re the, the remuneration of the fund manager was for the first time based on not just the achievement of a financial result, but also the achievement of a measurable social return. So every year we have been measuring the impact of every single investment. And that changed things completely. What we found quite quickly is, first of all, investing in healthcare in Africa, and we've been in Africa for a very long time, is not easy. It has, that fund has a lower target rate of return than our main Africa fund. Now that concession is not there because it, this is even more impactful than our main funds. That concession is there because doing healthcare transactions in Africa is extremely risky. Mm -hmm. By the way, most investors who are putting their capital in our funds require at least a 25% return to account for what they call the Africa risk. 
Now, this is a continent which, between 2002 and 2012, GDP quadrupled. Right. Between 2010 and 2025, GDP is going to increase two and a half times. So the growth is, is quite massive. But again, it's in certain sectors, and many of these sectors we actually don't go into, including the extractive industry. Mm. So we, changed, we, we developed a new structure of a fund. We've just made our 11th investment in that fund, uh, which is a small hospital in, in Lusaka. And it was a former mission hospital. So part of what we're doing is taking businesses or making into businesses things that were previously religiously affiliated and which were very much reliant on grant funding. And we're trying to make them more sustainable. Mm. Now, we realized that we will never get to the kind of scale that we need to. So two years ago, we sat down and started developing a new fund. And this is a global health fund with most of the capital going to Africa and Asia. And the first thing we said is, a 10-year fund life doesn't work, not for healthcare. If you want to really build the kind of institutions that Danny Truell at Wellcome right. Trust wants to invest in and stay invested in for 30 years, mm -hmm. if you're talking about our markets, you've actually got to put in the capital and make sure it's there for longer than five years. So we're looking at a longer fund life here. We're also, we've also realized that it's difficult to scale existing businesses, businesses which were created in extremely challenging circumstances. So the thing that we also need to be willing to do is mix venture as well as private equity. Mm -hmm. So this fund is half venture. We will be building whole new businesses, which is not the normal thing for a PE firm, but it helps us get the impact to scale in the right way. I think one of the things that comes across so, so strongly when you're working in these you know, growth markets is that it really, yes, it's about money, but it's about so much else. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? How, I mean, you know, and then always the, you know, I hate the term capacity building, but that's really what it, you know, that, that piece is always, oh no, well, you know, investors don't want to touch that. But that's really, that's a big part of why we get paid as a fund manager. And the first way we, deal, we, we handle all of these uh, challenges, mm -hmm. frankly, is by having local teams. Okay. So we're a group of 300 people deploying this capital. We have 30 offices. There's three offices which are not in the markets in which we're operating. There's one in London, there's two in the US. Every other office is in the markets in which we're investing. The teams are from those markets. They live there. They know what it's like and they know what the personal issues are. Mm -hmm. I have a colleague who runs our Africa Health Fund in Kenya. And he's absolutely determined by the time we finish the Africa Health Fund, we will have invested in a cardiac hospital. Mm -hmm. Now, given that the first cardiac surgery that took place was in South Africa, we still don't have adequate cardiac care on exactly. the continent. And for him, he's had to deal with that with his own father. So we have personal motivation. So that's mm -hmm. one thing which drives us as individuals. But the other part of this, Pamela, in terms of capacity building, hugely important. Because even just from a commercial perspective, right. we have to build the management of these businesses. Right. We have to build, we have to get the boards right. The board is not a nice, nice to have, it's an essential to have, as right. you, as you exactly. well know. And it's very challenging, especially with family-owned businesses, mm. to get the decision-making into the right, uh, right. structure and, and so forth. With the, with the Africa Health Fund, we did have a, um, you know, they say a three-legged stool doesn't wobble. Mm -hmm. So this fund was actually based on three principles. And the first was the fund itself. The second was a TA facility that we raised alongside it. And I managed that TA facility. Mm -hmm. the, the TA facility has two objectives. One is to ensure the adequate measurement of the, of the impact of the investments. The second is to actually incubate and develop innovative ways 
to reduce the, the cost of service and uh, service delivery. Mm -hmm. So an example of that is um, last, last November, uh, five of us sat down with uh, Philips in their offices mm -hmm. in, the, in the Netherlands. And for two days, we went through 28 of their staff members coming in and giving us presentations of the stuff they're working on. And it turns out through, through their CSR budget, they've actually developed a whole host of technologies, uh, education programs, and, and so forth, which are actually low cost. But they're handing it out free of charge as part of their CSR projects in one or two places. So the first thing I asked is, why can't we commercialize this? Right. So over the next six months, I worked with the team to come up with three programs which are rolling out across five or six of the hospitals that we've invested in mm -hmm. out of the Africa Health Fund. Now, the first discussion when we came back was a discussion where we talked about the costing of this. And they kind of swung from, we're not charging for this, to wow, we can make a lot of money from this. And so, you know, I had to bring them back down to earth to say, let's, let's get reasonable about this. Mm -hmm. But there is a role I very strongly feel for the big multinationals who have a capability on the innovation side to mm. partner. The intent is let, let's leverage each other's right. capabilities as opposed to try and Absolutely. develop it ourselves. Henry. I work for uh, Responsibility Investments. This is a Zurich-based asset manager founded in 2003. We currently manage a little bit close to $2.5 billion that we deploy uh, mostly in financial services, agriculture, and energy, but we would like to grow into health and education. Um, most of our investments, about 85%, have been in debt investments, uh, but we've now have been also focusing on equity investments where we have about 15%. Um, I believe um, the, there's been a very nice symbiotic approach on why we invest where we invest and in which sectors. I think the first drive came from our founding partners. Mm -hmm. um, they really realized that there was an opportunity to connect those wealthy individuals in the north, for lack of a better word, um, and those emerging economies. Um, and they focused in one sector that started over 30 years ago to develop, which was the, the microfinance sector. Um, and microfinance in the 70s and 80s was very much driven with a lot of philanthropy or aid money. But then in the 90s and onwards, there became some hybrid models with some commercial viability. And that's where we started. Um, and then we expanded because we realized that this issue of needing working capital for scale is extremely important across many other sectors. So our second sector was agriculture, mm -hmm. where we realized that um, a lot of cooperatives needed to have working capital, especially because a lot of them were working on the seasonality and you know exports were not coming uh, immediately when they needed to deploy the big season. So we started working in fair trade funds or, com or sustainable agriculture funds, where we built a bit of a trade finance facility providing them with that access. And most recently, um, the sector that we've grown uh, our participation is energy. Um, and this sector has been very different from agriculture and from finance. And I'll go into this a little bit. In our, in our financial uh, funds, and also in our agriculture funds, 98% of our funds is from private investors. No public investors, no development financial institutions. And when I talk about private investors here, I'm talking about retail investors, 
who could choose to buy our funds for their uh, retirement savings. Uh, we also have ultra high net worth individuals. We also have institutional investors. And I think here is where policy played a very positive role for us. Our company is based in Zurich. And we were able to convince the regulator that what we were offering could also be accessed by retail investors. And our fund, which is our flagship fund, which is called the, micro, the Global Microfinance Fund, it's today sold through Raiffeisen Bank and many other banks in Switzerland. Um, and I think this sort of, for lack of a better word, but democratize a little bit this issue of impact investing. Because a lot of it is only for what the US call qualified investors, where you have to have millions in your bank account to be able to invest. And I think it's really leaving out a lot of people who want to also act responsibly in their savings or pension investments, but the regulatory system is not allowing it because of risk uh, constraints. Um, so this has been a really, I would say, successful. I mean, 1.8 billion of our 2.5 is in financial institutions investments and about 100 plus in microfinance. The new sector, which is energy, is a whole different um, approach mm -hmm. because this is Pamela and, and everybody else. It's more, um, it's, it's more incipient and, and more emerging. And here we need to have a more diversified investor base. Here we need some foundations who have expertise like the Shell Foundation. Mm -hmm. We're launching a fund with okay. them um, and it has a lot of expertise in some of the things they've done. We also need to work with development financial institutions. The, the government uh, of some of the rich countries in this case is mainly the German uh, KFW entity is very interested in partnering with us as a private sector uh, asset manager to launch some um, funds. So this year alone, we're launching three energy funds. One that is a private equity fund, mainly on production of energy. Another one, which is a working capital for debt fund, which is to help those pioneers who have been able to prove something, but the banks in their local markets are not yet lending them. And they have this sort of, uh, you know, catch 22 because they cannot scale because they don't have access to capital. So we are working with the right. Shell Foundation and other international financial institutions to launch a working capital fund. And lastly, we were recently uh, mandated to run a third party fund that is called the Global Climate Partnership Fund, yeah. which is a fund that Deutsche Bank used to uh, manage and now will be managed by us that provides uh, credit lines to SME banks in emerging economies to provide green financing to SMEs in those countries. So this is a little bit more like focusing and helping the financial sector in emerging economies to allow green financing to happen. So now, where does the money come from, those 2.5 billion? Um, our CEO talks about the axis of, of good uh, instead of the axis of evil that some other president mentioned some years ago. And, and I think uh, here for us, it has been Switzerland, the Netherlands, and the Nordic countries. This is where most of our capital comes from. Germany and France, we do have uh, some capital flows. In France, it's only from institutions because of all the other uh, limitations. We are not yet raising capital in the Anglo-Saxon world. No UK, no US. That could be something there, but I think the um, ethos of sustainable financing and understanding 
that the, these returns might be modest rather than concessionary. Yeah. Uh, is because I think the sustainability is a lot more embedded in Absolutely. some of these parts of the world. Absolutely. You know, um, Will mentioned the whole thing about the creation of the ecosystem. And Alex, I'd like to get your take in terms of the ecosystem that's really, I mean, you know, when we look at capital markets, there's a massive ecosystem out there to support, you know, uh, the growth of capital markets. But when we look at this whole area of impact investing, social entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera, the ecosystem is very fragmented. What Talk a little bit about what's needed there. <laughs> okay, well, for the next hour. Now, well, yeah, how long do you want? I mean, I think, I think after two thousand eight, we might think the ecosystem of conventional capital might need some work too. But um, exactly. despite all the players in it um, benefiting from it, um, I think the uh, yeah, look, this is a very early stage market, so it's not surprising that it's not properly institutionalised. And I think there's what we see is is a lot of experimentation, and we haven't yet mentioned. I think policy here, no, or we well, have, we've, we've touched it. Well, yeah, you don't want me to mention it. I'll mention it now. Yeah, mention it. So policy is very important now. It has been in some countries anyway, particularly in the UK, I have to say, where government's taken a lead on trying to experiment, use government money, government influence, legislation, fiscal policy to help, um, you know, try and experiment in, you know, around a number of institutions in this space. And some of these are quite famous now, like Big Society Capital, the Social Investment Wholesale Bank in the UK, or the famous social impact bond model that's now, there's more than 25 of these up and running and about the same number emerging globally and a bunch of other uh, important sort of initiatives. So I think we're seeing experimentation, we're seeing um, early stage institutionalization, but we, you know, to your, your question directly, uh, I think all of the three parts of the market are under development, right? I think we have significant issues about supply of capital, not necessarily the quantity, but is it the right capital for this market? I think increasingly we're seeing there's money out there, but is it necessarily um, suited to the kind of instruments and investments that we need to actually deliver social benefit as well as some kind of, kind of return, rather than just a return that might or might not do some social good down the line? That's a real question. Of course, on the demand side, many organisations are too small or to use your, you know, the horrible, horrible phrase, you know, need technical assistance or financial assistance to, to be able to take investment. Um, you know, there's a real mismatch, I think. I mean, this country, there's now, you know, at least a billion pounds of, of, of investable capital out there through people like BSC. But if you talk to social entrepreneurs on the ground, they're saying it's coming nowhere near me. This is not yeah, touching me, mostly exactly. because they're too small. And then in the middle space, the intermediary space, the space that gets the capital from from the supply side to the demand side. Again, institutions are emerging, you know, and, and yeah. you know, Henry and Gita represent you know, examples of that. Um, but is it a fully institutionalized yeah, space? Exactly. Absolutely not. Do we have a suite of you know, specialist law firms, specialist consultancy firms, specialist funds, you know, carving up every part of the market? Absolutely yeah, right. not. Right. But on the other hand, you know, this innovation is really powerful. And I think you know, what I would say is that you know, there's still a real opportunity to kind of shape this space in the way we want it to be shaped, whoever we is. Um, and, uh, you know, my firm belief is we have to be quite radical in that view. And what I don't want to see is this space looking just like other capital markets with a bit of social added in it. Right. It needs to be something fundamentally different. Otherwise, we're just going to repeat the same mistakes of 2008 before. You know, one of the things to follow on that, and, and I do want to leave some time for some questions, but just to quickly address this, we, you know, Students in the MBA, as Saeed, students around the world, I mean, it's, impact investing is just drawing them like flies. I mean, I don't think, for, every student I know wants to do something in this area. And, uh, you know, the, the jobs just 
aren't there yet. Right. Um, and that's a real frustration. Uh, so I'd like both of you to talk a little bit about your career trajectory. Just very briefly <laughs> mention that because, I mean, Henry, you had a very sort of odd career trajectory. <laughs> Thank <for> you. <laughs> Well, yes, um, I'm from Costa Rica, and my background started in policy. So I spent about four or five years in policy, then I worked in international development at the World Bank in the UN, and then I came to finance at Morgan Stanley, and then now I'm in impact investing. So let's say that I want to think, and I never plan everything, huh? things just came out in a way, that this is a good way, what I'm doing now, I feel that this is sort of bringing a lot of that expertise, uh, you know, handy in the sense that we deal with you know, emerging economies. We have investments in Palestine, in Zimbabwe. Uh, I mean, we're not investing in Brazil or the BRIC countries only. Right. So, so some of the um, understanding of macro issues has come to play handy. We need to partner with development financial institutions, even though we don't like sometimes how they work, because they are not easy partners, they are important partners, they have knowledge, they have capital, they have technical expertise. So for me, it has really been sort of a very good opportunity. And then I obviously work in the real markets of financial capital markets. I went through the 2008 crisis, realized some of that, uh, you know, uh, characteristics of why things happened. Hopefully I'm able to infuse some of that into what I do. Um, I think, Pamela, to your question, I think the jobs are there, uh, maybe not in the same, uh, we are, you know, at the moment, responsibility is hiring over 20 people. For being a 150-person company, That's it's not lot. bad, but we are growing a lot. But it's just also that a lot of the opportunities are in the local markets. Yes, And exactly. I think this is something that I always talk to students when I'm here at Oxford or elsewhere, and that is, this north-south approach of handling things is really changing. I think the, the, it's a real bottom-up opportunity where you know even capital should come from those countries. Absolutely. But a lot of the investment opportunities, a lot of uh, the you know advisory or technical assistance, uh, a lot of that is in these countries. Mm. And you know here we're only looking at one side of the equation because we've been only discussing capital. The whole thing about entrepreneurship yeah. and innovation and all of that is a very important part where lots of jobs could be there. Yeah. Now, what sometimes students want to have to understand is that when they are in an MBA, it's quite unfortunate because they're only hearing what the consultants or the bankers or the CFOs are making. That's changing, So if they now also understand about the entrepreneur and what that's opportunities changing. could come, I think one can really build great opportunities. And I'm glad to see, um, I, was an, I, was a, I, was, I was an MBA student almost 10 years ago. Alex was my professor. Um, Pamela has been my mentor for over 15 years. So. Uh, it's amazing how far things have gone. I mean, even to have this panel uh, right. totally was unheard of four years ago, let yeah. alone 12, you know, right. 10. So I'm, I'm hopeful, as you can see. Good. <laughs> That's the only way to be, Gita. Uh, much, like, much like Henry, things just happened for me as well. Uh, so I, um, as I mentioned, I come from the emerging markets. I was born and brought up in three different African countries, one of which is one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. And so I, I did my first degree in finance in the US and then went into insurance and reinsurance into corporate finance. 
And after about five or six years, I uh, got, got itchy feet because I wanted to do something which is having an impact back, back at home. And so I found myself in, in Oxford, actually, I targeted Oxford because of the fact that I knew that at Oxford, you don't just get the business school. Mm-hmm. You get every other element of the entire university. And if you can really leverage that, you start to access a far broader way of thinking. And that was the most fundamental difference between going to school here and going to school in the US. That's right. I uh, decided at that point, during the MBA actually, I think I was the only MBA student not to apply for any jobs. I decided to do a PhD. So I applied for the, uh, for the master's program. Uh, and uh, that summer I interned at Ori's Capital and uh, ended up doing a variety of things um, and was offered a role which I thought would make a lot of sense. So I ended up doing the MSc and then, and then joining Aureus. But the subject of my research was the private sector impact of private equity in Africa. So it was very targeted to the firm that I was going into. And what I was able to do, one of the first things I worked on was actually bring together a lot of what I'd learned at Oxford techniques, everything from the scenario planning to help add immediate value to what we were doing. So the first year I actually developed a sustainability index, which is specific for measuring impact of private equity invested companies in the emerging markets. It was the first one ever done. And right now I'm taking a team through redesigning that and we're going to make it completely available to anyone who wants it. So I think what has helped me is to think much more broadly Mm -hmm. and leverage really what Oxford as a broader university offers. Other than that, it's about finding opportunities and making opportunities. The Africa Health Fund was the second thing I worked on when I first joined the firm. Without that experience and without the knowledge of how capital markets work, Mm. without the corporate finance knowledge, I wouldn't have been able to help as part of a team come together with with this new global fund where we're talking about changing the structure of the entire fund to meet a a development need. So I think rather than expecting there's a a ready set job for you to go into, part of the fund, frankly, is, is conquering new territory. Right. And it's also really interesting to go into traditional firms and this is what you did, and effect change from within, because that for me is in- incredibly important. Entrepreneur. 